you bow with me, please? Our Father, as we come before you tonight, we offer this service and every part of it to you from our hearts to yours as an offering, we pray in the name of our high priest and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's a delight to have with us tonight again Dr. James Walker. Would you help me welcome him to the pulpit this evening? Good evening. It's a great privilege to be allowed to come back to Colonial and be able to close out your summer series 2011 on Stepping Stones. It's a great privilege and honor to be able to do that. The title of my message today is Understanding Islam, A Christian Perspective. And what what I want to do this evening, I, I think this is a critical issue. Every Christian needs to know about the phenomena of Islam. And what I want to do is give you this evening a crash course on the topic. Now, I teach a course, a whole course on Islam at Criswell College in Dallas. And the challenge that I have this evening in the few minutes that we have right now, my challenge is I need to compress the first three weeks of my course into the next few minutes. So uh, I'm not going to be able to do a great job of that, but I'm going to try to get as much in there as possible. We also have uh, a a longer version of this message available on DVD, and it has two features that I don't have this evening called pause and rewind. I won't have time for either one of those. I do have a lot to cover, but as we talk about Islam this evening, I want you to remember that like all the topics that we deal with at Watchman Fellowship, all the religions, whether it's Islam or a world religion like Hinduism or whether it's a counterfeit Christian organization like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, you know, it's really going to come down to one question, and that question is, who is Jesus? Now, think with me about this. Anything of value, there are always going to be counterfeits. Am I right about that? I mean, if it's valuable, there are going to be counterfeits or or imitations. For example, a diamond is a very precious and valuable a stone because of its worth, of its value, of its expense, we know there are going to be counterfeit diamonds. There are going to be imitation diamonds. Some of them are called cubic, um, yeah, zirconium. You've gotten some of those before, haven't you? You know exactly what I'm talking about, cubic zirconiums. Now, to my eye, they look real. I look, there's a diamond. But a trained jeweler looks, just glances and goes, no, that's not a real diamond. It's an imitation. Why are there fake diamonds? Because the real thing is so valuable. Same is true for the pearl. Very precious, very valuable, very expensive because of its value, its intrinsic worth. There are going to be fake pearls. Some of those are very well done. But the plastic ones, even I can spot that those aren't real pearls. I'm told that the Rolex watch is the most counterfeited watch in the history of the world. Why? Because the genuine's so valuable. It's a a piece of precision machinery. It's jewelry. It's uh, valuable. It's very expensive. And that's why there are counterfeit Rolex watches. Now, think with me on this. I've never seen a counterfeit Timex watch. There's a reason for that. Well, it's even true of the king himself, Elvis Presley. Now, I got this. I I was in Memphis recently. I was reminded of this. My pastor shared this illustration with me. I I had no idea it was this bad, but there are a lot of imitation Elvis Presleys out there. 
They call them Elvis impersonators. And there's all kinds of them. There's uh, the sounds like Elvis, the looks like Elvis, the rare looks and sounds like Elvis. And then there's the, you know, the look like Elvis. There's the, um, the young Elvis. And then there's the, uh, the heavy Elvis. There's all kinds of counterfeit Elvises, Elvis impersonators out there. Uh, I didn't know it had gotten this bad. There's actually uh, conventions in Vegas where the Elvises get together. There's juggling Elvises. There's skydiving Elvises. There's whole conventions of Elvis Presley. Well, here's how bad he is. My pastor shared this with me. When Elvis Presley died in 1977, did you know that there were 1,300 registered Elvis impersonators? 1,300 registered Elvis impersonators. But that was 1977. Uh, 30 years later, in 2007, that number had swelled to 28,000 registered Elvis impersonators. And folks, that doesn't count all those undocumented Elvis impersonators out there. 28,000. My pastor said, James, it's so bad. By the year, by by 10 years from now, one in three Americans (laughs) registered Elvis impersonators. Well, now, if you have an imitation Elvis, no, no harm done. In fact, it could be entertaining. And if you get accidentally a counterfeit diamond or a fake Rolex. Well, you may be out some finances, but no true harm. But let me tell you this. If you end up with the wrong Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus, it's a deadly case of mistaken identity. And so let's talk about, turn, if you will, into, uh, to Matthew's gospel, chapter 16. And it's interesting to note that Jesus, there's no record of Jesus ever asking his disciples, hey, fellas, do people believe I exist? That was never the question. The issue revolved around who was Jesus. And you look here with me at Acts, I mean at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist has returned. Uh, Others and others, Elijah and still others, Jeremiah. Now watch this, Jeremiah are one of the prophets. Now this is interesting because we're about to see, this is exactly what Islam says. Muslims do believe in Jesus. We're going to see that in a moment. They have respect for Jesus. And they acknowledge, just as many of the people in Christ's own day, that Jesus was one of the prophets. But that confession is not sufficient. It goes on to say, verse 15, And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now watch this, the son of the living God. It's a confession of Peter. Now we're going to see in just a moment that no Muslim can make that confession. In fact, this confession is actually blasphemy in the eyes of a Muslim. No Muslim can make this confession. And this could be something that would have highly offended Jesus according to the Quran, according to the teachings of Islam. So how did Jesus respond to this outburst on the part of Simon Peter? Look at verse 17. And Jesus said to him, look at this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So after everything we see this evening on Islam, please remember it's always going to go back to the one question, who is Jesus? Well, let me give you the crash course. We're going to start right off the bat, understanding Islam, a Christian perspective. And we're going to start with the word Islam, definitions, what does it mean? And already we have a little controversy What does the word Islam mean? The word Islam in Arabic means submission. 
Submission to Allah. Now, you'll see in the news media, you'll see oftentimes people say the word Islam means peace. And Islam is the religion of peace. They'll make the case that the Arabic letters SLM, the consonants SLM, are the same consonants found in another Semitic language, which is uh, Hebrew. It's the word shalom. And they say, see, the word Islam means peace. It does not mean peace. It means to submit or any peace that arrives through submission to Allah. And one who submits to Allah is a Muslim. In the word Muslim, you'll notice those same three consonants, S-L-M. Now, in English, when we want to, to uh, say somebody that does a particular verb, we will add an E-R to the end of the word. So a runner is one who runs. In Arabic, you have the same effect by putting the M-U prefix on the word. So you have the same letters S-L-M, but a Muslim is one who is in submission to Allah. And they will say that anyone who submits to Allah is a Muslim. They will say uh, they believe not just in the prophet Muhammad, they believe in all the prophets. Now, if you look in the history books, you look in the uh, comparative religion uh, texts, it will say that Islam began uh, in roughly 610 A.D., when the prophet Muhammad went out to the cave of Hara and he hears, hears the voice of the angel uh, Jibril or Gabriel who tells him to recite. So 610 is when you have the first Muslim. But Muslims disagree with that. They say, no, anyone who submits to Allah is a Muslim. So they believe in the earlier prophets as well. And they would say that the Bible prophets also were Muslim. They submitted to Allah. So they believe in uh, uh, that King David was a Muslim. He submitted to Allah. They believe that, uh, that uh, uh, Abraham was a Muslim in submission to Allah. That the first prophet, Adam, was a Muslim in submission to God. Jesus himself was Muslim. In fact, they'll take it one step further. Muslims believe that you too were actually born Muslim, as was I. Everyone, they argue, is born in submission to Allah until something goes wrong. Because of your environment or because of misinformation, you began to believe false teachings. And perhaps you believe you began to believe in Judaism or atheism or Christianity. And you are no longer in submission to Allah. But when you were born, they will argue Muslim. So when they talk about you becoming Muslim, instead of conversion, they often prefer to call it reversion. They want you to revert back to the faith of your infancy. They want you to become Muslim again. Now, according to some estimates, there are approximately 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. 1.8 billion Muslims making it the world's second largest religion. Christianity is still the largest religion. But there's a few facts you need to know about the pie chart. First of all, the Christian part of the pie chart includes anything that calls itself Christian. So that would include uh, biblical Christianity, it would include uh, Catholicism, uh, it would include Eastern Orthodoxy, it would include Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. Anyone who self-professes Christianity falls in that part of the chart, according to the sociologists. And the Muslim part of the chart, although it's smaller, it's growing much more rapidly than the Christian part right now. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world right now. There's several reasons for that. But I want to focus not so much on worldwide. I want to focus here on U.S. growth. This morning I shared with you a statistic that between 1990 and 2004, Islam grew by 109% in America. 
What I didn't tell you this morning is during the same period of time, all of Christianity grew by roughly 5% in America. Islam is growing not just worldwide, it's growing right here. Why the growth? How does the growth happen? I think there's several factors for that that we need to take into consideration. First of all, Islam is growing in America because of immigration. There are many people coming from predominantly Muslim countries, Muslims, who are immigrating to the United States. Some are coming to take advantage of our education system and our universities and colleges. Some are coming for business opportunities. But there's a lot of immigration. I want to ask you why the immigration. Now, I have a theory for this. I can't prove this. But have you ever thought about this possibility? Could it be? Could it be that one reason that we're seeing so many Muslims immigrating to the United States, perhaps we as, a, as Christians have somewhat failed in our responsibility to take the gospel to the Muslim nations. And so now perhaps God is sending the Muslim to us and saying, hey, now that the Muslim is your next door neighbor, now that the Muslim is your classmate at the university, now that the Muslim is your doctor, now that the Muslim is your, uh, is your clerk at the store, now will you share my gospel with the Muslim people? And this is true throughout the United States, but here in the triangle, you, have a, you especially see this. This has become a, a vortex of of every kind of religion right here in the triangle because of business opportunities and technology this has given us an unprecedented opportunity that this has become a mission field that we don't have to go anywhere right here you will have as friends and neighbors people from all over the world what a great opportunity to share the gospel of jesus christ another reason for the growth would be birth rates a biological growth muslims tend to have more children than non-Muslims. We especially see this happening in Europe right now. It's true in the U.S. as well. But uh, you, don't, you don't want to forget one other factor. Why is Islam growing in the U.S.? One reason is conversion. People are converting to Islam here in the U.S. This is why this is, every Christian needs to be aware of this. Case in point, let me tell you about my friend Khalil Meek. Khalil Meek is president of the Muslim Legal Fund of America. Only organization like it in the U.S., He and his team go throughout the United States, and their mission is to uh, defend the legal rights and civil rights of Muslims in in the United States. That's what he does, president of the Muslim Legal Fund of America. Now, I've had talks with Khalil, and he acknowledges this. You know, no Christian's going to have those kind of rights in any Muslim country. You know that, don't you? In fact, ironically, most Muslims don't have those rights in Muslim countries as well. Nevertheless, this is his responsibility and duty. I did a a, a debate last year, a two-hour debate with Khalil Meek, where we went head-to-head on the key issues, Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. And in this debate, uh, he shares about his conversion. You see, uh, Khalil Meek is not from Pakistan. Khalil is not from Indonesia. Khalil is not from Saudi Arabia. Khalil is from Texas. He was actually raised uh, in a Christian home and became a Christian. You can hear his testimony. According to his testimony, he became a Christian, a Baptist, and he believed God was calling him to be a pastor. And after college, he was planning to become a student at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. But his roommate in college, a Muslim, gave him the Quran, challenged him to read it. In the reading of that, he reverted, converted to Islam. He's now the president of the entire Muslim Legal Fund of America. Now, let me say this. He is a case in point 
We have no way of having statistics on this, but I'm hearing more and more reports of people from a Christian background even converting to Islam. Now, approximately, D in your outline, about 90% of Muslims will be Sunni. About 90%. The word Sunni means the path. Shortly after the death of the prophet Muhammad, there was a huge conflict amongst the Muslim people over who should be the next uh, uh, person ordained by Allah to lead the people uh, of Islam. And there were two basic camps that developed. The majority of people went after what was known as the five rightly guided caliphs. However, there was a minority group called the Shia, which the word Shia means party of Ali. And they argued that uh, not all of these caliphs, only one, who was uh, Ali, who was the son-in-law and nephew of Muhammad, he was the only one ordained by Allah to be the leader of the Muslim people. And there was a huge conflict, about 9% of the Muslims in the world today, and that would hold up probably in the U.S. as well, would be uh, Shia. Now, there are some other types of Muslims out there, too. That's only 99%. There are sects and divisions of Islam. For example, there's the Sufi uh, Sufism is a, is a um, and the whirling dervish, this is a type of Islam that's very much into the um, mystical experiences. There's also the Ahmadiyya movement within Islam, which ironically are the only Muslims who believe that Jesus actually made it to the cross, the, the Ahmadiyya. And then here in the U.S., we have something very unique called the Nation of Islam or the Black Muslim Movement. Their doctrines are radically different from either Sunni or Shia Islam. This is the... Um, uh, if, if you saw the movie Malcolm X, or some of us are old enough to remember who Malcolm X was, you're familiar with this black Muslim movement, very uh, racist. Louis Farrakhan is the current leader of this controversial group. But I'm not going to be focusing on that. I'm going to spend most of my energy focusing right in on the largest group, which is Sunni. And I want to deal with what Muslims believe. I think the number one doctrine, my experience on this is, the, the most important belief of Islam is Allah is one. This is called the doctrine of Taweed. The idea that Allah is one. In Islam, they believe in only one God. Now, this has caused some confusion. I want to straighten some things out. Christians also believe in only one God, and Jews believe in only one God. These are the three large monotheistic religions of the world. And the confusion has been, many people think, well, that means we all believe in the same God. That's not the case. Now, this is complicated by the fact that when you read the New Testament in Arabic or the Old Testament, you're going to see the word Allah throughout the Old and New Testament. The word Allah is simply a generic word for God. And the context determines which God you're talking about. We find the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, the word theos in the, in the Greek would be the word for God. But in the New Testament, it says that uh, Satan is the God of this world. There's the word theos. But the context tells us, of course, that's not the God that we worship. That would be a different God. The context is everything. So when Muslims talk about the one God or that Allah is one, they believe in a type of oneness which cannot have three persons. Because they teach that Allah is one and separate and cannot have any partnership, any relationship, any uh, companion or helper in his uh, work as God. He alone is God. It's a dynamic monarchy, uh, 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 a teaching about God that there's only one person who is God. And therefore, there cannot be a Trinitarian God. Christianity believes in, the scriptures teach, a God who is one, but who is eternally 
who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This cannot be the God of Islam, which leads us to be the greatest sin. In fact, this is the unpardonable sin in Islam, is the sin of shirk. The sin of shirk is to ascribe any kind of partnership, any kind of relationship, any kind of helper to God other than the one true God, Allah. So in Islam, God cannot have a son, nor can God be a son. The the Quran says it this way, Allah is neither begotten, nor does he beget. And in fact, if you say that there's a son-father relationship with God or a Trinitarian thing, this leads to the very unpardonable sin of shirk. This is why no Muslim, no Muslim can make the same confession that Simon Peter did. That Jesus is the son of God because God, according to the Quran, can never have a son. He cannot be a son nor have a son. Well, this leads us to Jesus and Isa. Now, the Muslims do believe in Jesus. They have a deep respect for Jesus. They call him Isa, and he's talked about quite a bit in the Quran. And in fact, there's some things that, that uh, they share with us about the beliefs in Jesus. Now, it is not, you need to understand, this is not the same Jesus. We're going to see why in a moment. But because of the commonality, we can remember this morning we talked about starting with doctrines that unite. This is a great way of starting a conversation because Muslims believe that Jesus was one of the prophets. Isa, Jesus, they teach. Well, his, his birth was prophesied by the other prophets. And uh, listen, this is interesting. Unlike Muhammad or any of the other prophets, they teach that Jesus was born of a virgin. The Quran confirms the virgin birth, unlike Muhammad or any other prophet. And they also believe Jesus is Messiah. You say, well, that, that means that we all believe in the same Jesus. Some Christians will make this mistake as well. And it's understandable they would make the mistake, but this is not the same Jesus. Because they go on to say that Isa, Jesus... Uh, did not die on a cross. He's not the Son of God. Uh, he's not the second person of the Trinity. Uh, he did not die on the cross. In fact, this is kind of fascinating. What did happen to Jesus? Now, the Muslims do believe that Jesus was condemned to the cross, but he never actually made it. Now, the Quran itself is very vague on this, but in the subsequent uh, century after the death of Muhammad, a number of theories developed. The Quran only says this. They crucified him not. They thought they had crucified him, but indeed they crucified him not. So what happened? The theories that were developed by the Muslim scholars was that uh, the, the predominant theory is a substitute theory. That someone else, one of the other disciples, was substituted for Jesus in his behalf. And some of the Muslims argue it was Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried the cross beam for Christ. It was He was the one. He was carrying the cross. There was a mix-up. He got crucified by accident. Or perhaps the likeness or the similitude of, of Jesus, his face was put on one of the other disciples. That's one of the theories. We talk about this during the debate as well. That's not the majority theory. You're not going to believe the The majority of Muslims that I talk to believe that the substitute who died on the cross was not Simon of Cyrene. It was actually Judas Iscariot. Judas was the one who died for and on behalf. Talk about turning the substitutionary atonement around. It was Judas who died on behalf of Jesus for and on behalf of Jesus. That's the majority theory. But Jesus did not die on a cross, never rose from the dead. Now this morning as we saw Paul addressing the Areopagus, he refers directly to the resurrection. And this is a powerful apologetic, a defense of the faith, 
And on my debate with Khalil, we get into this. We have evidence, extra biblical evidence on the resurrection. And if, if it was a substitute who died on the cross, then why was the tomb empty? You say, well, because it was a substitute. Well, then where's the body of the substitute? These are, these are questions that have never been addressed. These are, these are, these are uh, critical issues to the gospel message. So Jesus and Isa. They teach also, D in your outline, uh, Muslims believe that the Quran alone is trustworthy. Now, the Quran alone. Now, they do believe in the, in the Bible. They do believe, especially in the Torah, in the, in the uh, Pentateuch, the, the books of Moses. They believe also in the Psalm of David. They believe in all the prophets, remember. And they put an emphasis on also the Injil or the gospel of Jesus. They believe, but, but however, they've been convinced that the people of the book, now that, that would be the Christians and the Jews, that we, the people of the book, uh, perverted the, the, uh, the Old and New Testament, that the, that the Word of God was changed, corrupted, and so uh, what we have today is not trustworthy. That's why it was incumbent upon Allah to, to, react, uh, to uh, resend His Word to earth, and He did that about 610 A.D. They believe that uh, Muhammad went out to a cave to meditate, the cave of Hara near his home in Mecca, and as his habit, he, he went out to the cave, and this particular time of meditation, he hears a voice. Now, it's interesting, according to the companions of Muhammad, according to tradition, initially, Muhammad thought this voice might be some evil source. But Muhammad's wife, Kadisha, and others convinced him that, no, this was actually the angel Gabriel. So Muhammad listened to the voice, and the voice said, recite. The word uh, Quran means to recite. And he came out with the first surah. A surah is a chapter. And he verbally recited that, and his followers memorized what he said and began to recite it to others. And over about a 23-year period, as the angel Gabriel would speak to Muhammad, he would memorize, recite that, and, and it would verbally be passed on to others. And that's how we got the Quran. They teach that only the Quran is trustworthy. Well, let's shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about how Muslims worship. How Muslims worship. This is very important. What my experience is with Islam, there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on correctly worshiping. In fact, in all of Islam, there seems to be, to me, a bigger emphasis on orthopraxy over orthodoxy. Now, orthopraxy means doing the right things. Where orthodoxy is emphasis on believing the right things. Now, let me just ask you this. For a Christian, both are important, but which is more important to the Christian? What you do or what you believe? Yeah, for Christians, we're saved by what we believe. We believe in Christ, and that's how we're saved. So belief, orthodoxy, is more important than orthopraxy. My experience with Islam, it seems to be reversed. A heavier emphasis on doing the right things, orthopraxy, it's all about worship, and it revolves around the five pillars. Let me share the five pillars with you. The first pillar is uh, shahada. Shahada simply means the declaration. Shahada is the declaration. It's very important because this is how a person becomes Muslim. You become Muslim by reciting Shahada, the declaration, but it must be recited in Arabic with the correct pronunciation. You say, well, James, what if you don't know Arabic? Well, another Muslim will help you. They'll say, repeat this after me. You, with, with honesty and integrity, you recite Shahada in Arabic. 
Now, what I want to do is I want to give you the English translation of Shahada. It basically goes this way. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. There are, there are two components to Shahada. You must uh, acknowledge and confess the one God, Allah, but you also must confess and receive the idea that Muhammad is his messenger, his last messenger, the prophet, his apostle. There are the two components. You accept God and you accept the prophet. And this is how a person becomes Muslim through Shahada. In fact, you can Google this or go to YouTube. It would be better. And you can put in uh, taking Shahada. And you will see people publicly, hundreds of them in line, coming up to, to get, take Shahada for the first time. And my, my course that I teach in, uh, at Criswell College on Islam, one of the things I do towards the end of the semester is I like to bring in some Muslims for my students to meet. And I want them to interact with more than just the textbook or my lectures. And so towards the end, I bring them in. And I brought in uh, uh, Hassan Khalil, who's the imam of the Sunni mosque in Arlington, Texas, where I live. And I've known him for a number of years. I knew what to expect. I brought him in. And the rules go like this. For the first uh, 30 minutes, the, the Muslim can share anything they want to the class. But for the next 45 minutes, my students can ask any question they want. Now, you know how I am, or you probably do. Uh, my students are being graded on their questions. They had all week to come up with good questions. I'm taking uh, uh, note of what their questions are. And so uh, this guy, he, hey, he's a real straight shooter. He comes in there, and one of my students asks, he says, uh, Sir, my question is this. He asked the imam. One of my students asks, You say that the New Testament is not trustworthy and that we don't need to go with the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We need to instead be, put our faith in the Gospel of Barnabas. He said, now, my question is this. You, you understand, sir, that this is a Bible college, right? And that we've all given our lives to be here to learn the Bible. My question is this. Are, are you saying that's a bad thing? Well, the imam looked around the class and he said, Let me ask you, my friend, would you like the nice answer or the true answer? A student said, I like the true answer. He said, you, he said, all of you, you're wasting your time. The Bible is not to be trusted. You go with the Quran. He says, you need to turn your attention to Allah. In fact, all of you, let me help you with this. I want you to take Shahada. Repeat this after me. And he starts Arabic giving them Shahada. Now, I already told my students, you can ask any question that you want, but if any of you convert, <laughs> automatic F. You will fail the course. I'm telling you right now, you're going to fail the course. But he was, hey, he, was, he was shooting straight. Only the Quran is trustworthy, and you need to become Muslim by taking shahada. That's the first pillar. The second pillar is salat. These are the daily prayers or the obligatory prayers. There are five prayer times. In fact, there's a window, and they have, they have iPhone apps to help you keep up with this now, but there's a window of when you can do your prayers. And there's five daily times, but the prayers they're doing are not prayers like in the sense that we would pray for intercession or maybe there's a decision we need to make, we're asking for insight. Muslims will pray this way too, but the obligatory prayers aren't about this at all. It's all about doing it the right way. The prayers must be, uh, first of all, prepared for by a ceremonial washing. That you must be dressed correctly with your head covered. You must be facing the right direction. You must be facing Mecca. Then you must do the prostrations in the correct order and the correct form. You must give the memorized prayers in Arabic with the correct pronunciation. And you must, there's again the emphasis on orthopraxy over orthodoxy. Some of the earliest memories of children, by the way, 
a growing up Muslim, is learning five times a day to do the Arabic Salat, the prayer times five times a day. That's the second very important pillar. The third pillar of Islam is the Psalm or the fast. During the ninth lunar month, which we just now have been experiencing, the ninth lunar month is the month of Ramadan. And during the Ramadan month, you must, during the daylight hours, be in a complete fast. Now, this doesn't mean just to abstain from food. You must abstain from food and liquid, no food, no water, during the daylight hours. Now, as soon as the sun goes down, and I mean, you'll be surprised. They know exactly what hour and minute that is. As soon as that sun sets, they know, and the the fast is broken during the night hours. And then as soon as the sun rises, the fast must be continued again, and that goes through the month of Ramadan. That's the third pillar, uh, the psalm or the fast. The The fourth pillar is zakat. Zakat are the alms. The giving to those in need, the alms. Let me just read to you from the Quran. This is from Surah, which is chapter, uh, Surah 960. Charity shall go to the poor, the needy, the workers who collect them, to the new converts, to free the slaves, to burden those by sudden expenses in the cause of Allah, and to the traveling alien, such as Allah's commandment, Allah is omniscient, most wise. Now, the alms that you give, there's a prescribed amount to give. It's 2.5%. Of your net worth. Now, th- this is not like a tithe or something that's given out of uh, your increase. It's not like an income tax. It's more like a property tax. And there's uh, 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 there are instructions not only about receiving the tax correctly, but it, it must be also spent correctly. That it goes to those who are truly in need. The Ummah or, or the, the, the Muslim community is responsible to make sure that zakat also is invested correctly in the people who are actually in need. In countries who are, that are predominantly Muslim, if they're under Sharia law, oftentimes the uh, government itself will step in and ex- extract the zakat from the people and administer it as well. And this is the fourth pillar, zakat. The fifth pillar is the Hajj or the pilgrimage. The Hajj is incumbent upon every Muslim with exceptions to if you are poor, destitute, cannot financially afford to. But if you can financially do it, it's incumbent upon every Muslim at least once in their life during the 12th lunar month to go to Hajj, the pilgrimage. You must go to Saudi Arabia. And what happens there is you, there's a, about a two-week-long uh, event that takes place during the Hajj season, and you will go through a reenactment of some of the things that happened in the life of Muhammad and other of the prophets. You will, uh, there's, a, there's a thing they do where they will throw pebbles at, at some pillars representing stoning of Satan. Uh, they will drink water from the well of Zamzam. Uh, they will also, one of the big visuals that happens during Hajj takes place in the Grand Mosque of Saudi Arabia. There's a black cube-shaped structure there in the, in the Grand Mosque called the Kaaba. Now, the Kaaba, according to Muhammad, goes all the way back to the time of Abraham and was originally constructed by Abraham, this building was, to worship the one true God. But by the time of Muhammad's day, the whole thing had been given over to paganism. And in fact, there were some 360 idols that were being housed in the Kaaba. And part of what Muhammad did when he returned from Medina and conquered Mecca, he liberated the Kaaba, threw out all the idols, and reinstituted its proper usage for the Hajj. And one of the things that happens during the Hajj 
is all the Muslims who are there must march around seven times counterclockwise. This is called circumambulation, going round and round. There's a stone in the eastern wall of the Kaaba, a black stone, which they say goes all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. And as you go past this stone, you must either kiss the stone or if that's impractical, point to the stone. This is one of the highlights of the Hajj uh, or the pilgrimage. So that, that's the fifth pillar. So you have the five pillars, and these are so important how Muslims worship because heaven and hell stands in the balance. In Islam, in the Quran, as you read it, there's a heavy emphasis on a final judgment day, and there's a heavy emphasis on hell, very graphic descriptions of hell. And there's the judgment day. Allah is going to weigh on one side your good deeds and on the other side the bad deeds that you've done. Those things are weighed. Now, even before Allah weighs them, though, something must happen first. First of all, uh, there's going to be a line of people right before you're judged who want to speak with you. And in this line of people are anyone that you have ever done wrong. If you hurt their feelings, if you defrauded them, if you lied about them, anything you ever did wrong, they stand in line to see you. And as they come up to you, they're going to remind you of what you did. And then they're going to ask for some of your good deeds. You're going to negotiate. You're going to come up with a settlement everybody agrees on. You're going to dip into your reservoir of good deeds, and you're going to satisfy that person, and then the next in line, and then the next in line, and then the next. Now, for some of us, that line will be longer than others. But you must satisfy the complete line, and only when you get to the end of the line, then you take whatever's left over of your good deeds, and you stand before Allah. And on one side of the scale, the scales of justice, he puts all the remaining good deeds, but on the other side, he puts the bad deeds. Now, this raises the obvious question, and I've asked this many times to Muslims. Let me ask you, friend, on the final day of judgment, will your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? I've never had a Muslim know the answer to that question. Here's what I usually hear. Allah is merciful, or here's what I mostly hear, will of Allah. In other words, it's Allah's will, whether or not those scales of justice. They hope, they're working, they're trying, but no Muslim has any assurance because it's all depending on your good deeds versus your bad deeds. That's why the five pillars are so important. We talked about them, uh, shahada, salat, the psalm, zakat, the tax, and also the hajj. There's five pillars, but let me ask you this. Is there actually a sixth pillar? Now, this is controversial, but I have to deal with the whole issue of jihad. What about jihad? Now, technically, jihad is not a pillar. There's only five pillars of Islam, not six. However, you cannot understand Islam without understanding and wrestling with this whole concept of jihad. What is jihad? Why is it so important? Now, you may have seen the political cartoon where uh, people try to dismiss the um, jihad. You may have seen the political cartoon where the Muslim says, jihad? Ignore him, my friend. He's only a mirage. Jihad is not a mirage. Now, jihad is very, very important, but I want to deal with what it really means because, again, you don't understand Islam without understanding the background on jihad. Now, for most of us, the first time we ever remember hearing this word, this Arabic word jihad, was 10 years ago. Remember? You heard it for the first time when you were watching on television the events of 9-11, and you saw the attack of America. It's hard to believe that's been 10 years ago, but we still remember exactly where we were. And as we turn on the media, we try to figure out what was happening. For the first time, many, many of us 
heard what was going on was jihad and the media was calling it a holy war. And then that raised the second question people were asking, why do the Muslims hate us? Why do they hate Americans? Why do they hate people in the Western part of the world? Or why do they hate Christians? Why do they hate? And we hear the same answers from the news media. Well, they have to hate us because of jihad. It's a holy war. You need to understand the word jihad does not mean holy war. The word jihad in Arabic means struggle. And while every Muslim believes in the principle of jihad, very few Muslims are actually in, in, in favor of violence or um, terrorism, especially here in America. It's very, very small minority. But every Muslim does believe in jihad. According to Hadith and the tradition of Islam, there are two kinds of jihad, the greater and the lesser. The the, uh, lesser jihad is warfare, and it would include uh, in some of the sword verses that you read in the Quran where it talks about Hunt down the infidel, kill the infidel wherever you find them. These sword verses, that is a type of warfare that is a jihad, a lesser jihad. But there's also the greater jihad, which is the struggle, jihad, that any Muslim has in trying to correctly and sufficiently be in submission to Allah. So every Muslim believes in jihad, but relatively few, very few, are terrorists or in favor of violence. Now, I don't want anyone to leave here uh, in just a few minutes thinking that you do not want to have a relationship or a friendship with a Muslim because that person may be a terrorist or they may be trying to kill you. Now, is that what the sword verses say in the Quran? Yes, they do. But the vast majority of Muslims do not interpret that you're to kill every infidel in every time, in every situation. They, they would say that applied just to the time of Muhammad, just to the Arabian Peninsula for that particular battle that was taking place. They don't say that this, you kill all infidels. And in fact, think with me, it may not be our best strategy to try to convince a Muslim, oh, no, you are supposed to kill him. Let me show you right here. You, should, you kill the, I'm an infidel. You're the, that's probably not our best strategy. The vast majority of Muslims are peace-loving people, especially here in the United States. Do not fear having a relationship with a Muslim. Now, that said, let me, let me set the record straight. Although it's a small percentage, it's still very significant. Because you're talking about 1.8 billion Muslims. So let's say only 10% would interpret the Quran in a terroristic way, in a violent way. 10%, you're looking at 180 million terrorists out there. Well, maybe it's not 10%, maybe it's 1%. Well, you'd still be looking at 18 million terrorists. And even if you argue it's one-tenth of 1%, that's still 1.8 million terrorists out there. So it's very uh, significant even though the vast majority of Muslims are certainly peace-loving people. Here's what I'm saying. This is an important issue, the whole issue of uh, radicalized Islam and terrorism. But the whole issue of defending our, uh, our nation, defending our people against terrorism of all stripes, falls on our government and our military. And I thank God for the men and women who have put their lives on the line to defend our nation against all kinds of, of uh, harm including Islamic terrorism. Thank you. Some of you are here this evening. Thank you. That's our job of our, of our military and our politicians. But let me, let me shoot straight with you. We're not the government. We're not the military. We're the church. And our job is not homeland defense. 
Our job is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to take that gospel into all the world, including our friends and neighbors who are Muslim. And so I want to talk about this last section. I want to talk about how to reach Muslims, reaching out to Muslims. I want to give you some stepping stones of helping a Muslim to be able to understand the gospel in a way their Muslim ears can understand that, to befriend, to build a relationship to build a bridge, if you will, of the gospel. And so this last section here, very quickly, let's just look at some do's and don'ts for building bridges. What are our stepping stones? Don't be inconsistent in your walk. What do I mean by that? Muslims are looking at what you do. They're not caring about what you believe. Remember orthopraxy over orthodoxy. And one of the confusions, especially for Muslims from international Muslims here in America, you have a lot of them here at the universities right around here. Here's the confusion. Put yourself in their shoes. They come from a Muslim nation. They know what that's about. But now they're in America, a Christian nation. And the confusion is everything they see at the movies, on the television set, everything in the culture, they think that's Christian. Everything from... Charlie Sheen to Lady Gaga. I mean, they're looking at, oh, that's Christian. That's what Christianity is about. We need to be consistent in our walk because they're looking at how we live. And we need to, to model Christianity in a way they can not only hear it, but also see it. Second stepping stone, don't attack the Quran or Muhammad. Don't attack. Ask questions. Now, if you watch the debate, you will see that I, I am not shy at all about asking the very tough questions. What I don't want to do is ridicule someone or belittle them. You may have seen the pastor last year at this time in Florida call for the international burn a Quran day. That is so wrong on so many levels. I want to debate the Quran. I don't want to burn it. I want to get to the issues that are raised in this. And we do a disservice, especially international, internationally when we call for things like that. So don't attack the Quran or Muhammad. Ask good questions instead. See... Don't offend their customs unnecessarily. For example, no pork. You you invite a Muslim friend out to lunch, don't order a ham sandwich. You're just going to offend them. No pork. Also, no alcohol. You have a Muslim friend over, do not offer them a beer. In fact, you shouldn't be offering anybody a beer. Let me make make that clear for you. Don't offer them a beer. Uh, Secondly, use of the left hand is considered offensive. Use the right hand. Don't offend them by using the left hand. You hand them something to use the right, not the left. Dogs are considered to be unclean animals. Dogs. Do not let a dog in the same room with a Muslim. Do not let your dog jump up on your Muslim neighbor. This is, I can't tell you what's going through their mind if that happens. So don't offend their customs unnecessarily. Let's talk about some positive uh, stepping stones. Do let them see you practice your faith. Let them see you pray before a meal. Now, prayer is so important to them five times a day. Most Muslims have never seen a Christian pray. When they see you pray before a meal, that speaks to them. That says that there's something real about your faith. Reading the Bible in public, same thing. Let them see you practice your faith. E, do share your testimony. If you go through the evangelism explosion program, hear it at a colonial, they're going to help you to have some tools to be able to share your faith that will apply to anyone, including Muslims. You should be able to share your story in two or three minutes. This was my life before. A great way to start the conversation with a Muslim. You can just ask them this. Friend, have I ever shared with you how I became a Christian? 
Now, that, that takes them back because they go, well, uh, of course I know you were born in America. That's how you became a Christian. So, oh, no, no. To be born in America makes you American. But to become a Christian, you must be born a second time. Do what? And for most Muslims, they never heard this. like John chapter 3 all over again. What do you mean I must be born again? And you could just share, this was my life before I became a Christian. And you can talk about the problem of sin. And you can talk about uh, realizing that your good deeds would never outweigh your bad deeds. And I came to a place I realized I needed help. I needed a Savior. And you talk about how you receive Christ as Savior and realize that He is salvation, not your own goodness. But you also want to close out with a confidence that you have an assurance that your sins have been forgiven. You don't have to wait to the judgment day to see. You know, because your salvation was already accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross, that you have a confidence to go before God and know that your sins have already been forgiven. No Muslim has that assurance. This speaks volumes. Do, Do share your testimony. Do give a gift. The Muslim are very much gift-giving people. In fact, if you have a Muslim over, uh, you should always have something to drink and something to eat as soon as they walk into the door. Uh, you want to be able to give a gift. I know when we had the imam, the Sunni imam, into the class at Criswell, we, knowing this to be a principle, we were certain that we had a gift for him. And so at the end of the class, I said uh, to um, uh, Hassan, I said, uh, the class and I have a gift that we'd like to give you. And he smiled. But then all of a sudden, he, he stepped back and his face fell. And he goes, oh, oh, no. He says, my friend, I, I brought no gift for you. And he was genuinely uh, upset. And I said, oh, no, no, you, no, you misunderstand. You're coming to speak to the class today. That was your gift to us. This is our gift in exchange. He said, oh, and he was like, oh, he was so happy. Oh, oh, thank you. And he he opens it up. And what we had gotten him, we got him a a, a New Testament written in Arabic. And he he had his name on it. That may be the first time at Lifeway they actually put Imam Hassan. (laughs) (laughs) So he opens it up, and he's like like a kid at Christmas or something. He's opening it up. He's so happy. But then he sees it's Scripture. And he goes, he makes sure there's no dirt on his hands. And he carefully opens it and says, uh, the scriptures and he says Injils and he, in Arabic and I said yes and I said I noticed in my study of the Quran that it said that the people of the book failed because they failed to keep the commands of Isa he said yes you must keep the commands of Isa I said but I noticed something in the Quran in my reading of the Quran I never found a list of the commands of Isa written so I thought, well, perhaps the only place you can find the commands of Isa to obey them would be in the Angels, in the gospel. So I thought you would appreciate this. And again, he took it very graciously, and, and it was just, you want to give gifts. And so that's my point. Finally, do share continuously. Now, this is counterintuitive. In a Muslim culture, especially this is for an international Muslim, if you ask something one time, you don't really mean it. So you invite the Muslim at work or students. You have a Muslim friend. You say, afterwards, let's, let's go out to the mall. Let's go out to the Starbucks. If you ask one time to the Muslim mind, you don't mean it. You say to be polite, but you don't really mean it. So you ask a second time in the culture, and now you have the attention. Now, they're still going to say no, but now they're listening. The third time that you ask, would you like to go? They're almost convinced. The fourth time, they know you're genuine. They accept the invitation. Now, for our, in our culture, if you ask once, they say no, that means no. And if you ask a second time, you're the one being rude. 
In Islam, it's the opposite. You must ask continuously. So you say, well, James, is it worth it? Should we try to build a bridge to our Muslim friends with the gospel? I, I wish I could give you, had time to really to expound on this. But let me tell you, God is reaching the Muslim people. We get all kinds of reports at Watchman Fellowship about Muslims who are being reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a great revival going on in some countries right now. Muslims coming to faith in Christ. But let me just, for the sake of time, I want to give you only one example of this. Is it worth it? I give you a case in point. Uh, I want to give you one case in point. Mossab Hassan Yusuf. Mossab Hassan Yusuf is the son of the co-founder of the uh, Israeli terrorist organization Hamas. In fact, he's called son of Hamas. His father was a co-founder. And he wrote a book last year which became a New York Times bestseller. And it was a shocking story of what it was like to be raised Palestinian Muslim. And as you begin to read his book, Son of Hamas, you can almost empathize with the fact that he hated the Western world. And he felt persecuted. And he was, he was arrested for terrorist activities and put in Israeli prison and beaten by the Israeli guards. And he had a bitterness. And you can almost understand what he was going through. But then he said, began to notice something in the book. He said, for all the, the uh, terror that he was seeing, all of the uh, abuse from Israelis, he saw more abuse coming from Muslim on Muslim. Very interesting. Most of, the, most of the violence is not Muslim versus Jew, not Muslim versus Christian. It's Muslim versus Muslim. And he noticed that. And then one day in the providence of God, he was in Jerusalem after being released from prison. And he was going through the Damascus Gate. And as you go out the Damascus Gate, you see right there, there's the, Jewish, uh, there's the uh, Christian quarters and there's the Arab quarters. And as he's going through the Damascus Gate, here's a voice calling out. And the voice says... In broken Arabic, what is your name? What is your name? And Mossab turned to his friend and looked back over and said, my name is Mossab. And the man switched to English. And he said, we're having a get-together over by the, at the YMCA by King David Hotel. Would you like to join us? We're going to talk about Isa. Would you like to come join us? Now, as in the providence of God, 99 times out of 100, Mossab would have never said yes to that invitation. But he happened to be asked the question on a day he was so bored out of his mind, even that sounded better than nothing. So he turns to his friend, hey, let's do it. What's to lose? Anything's better than nothing. And his friend goes, oh, no, not me. Well, Mossad goes by himself. And he goes there and he said they began to talk about Jesus, Isa. And one of the things that happened at the end of the talk, he was given a New Testament as a gift. In, written in both Arabic and English. He smuggles the New Testament home. He never read the New Testament. He was fascinated by it. He decided to read it. So he's secretly reading in his bedroom. And he was interesting. He'd never heard this before. Very interesting. But he turned the page as he was reading the story of Jesus. He turned the page and saw a verse that shocked him to his core that was forever to change the life of Mossab Hassan Yusuf. Because he read in the New Testament where Jesus said, You must love your enemies. He goes, no, I've never heard this. I've never heard this. Who can say this? No, no. The, The principle is if they hurt you, you hurt them. If they kill one, you kill two. They kill two, you kill four. But how can the teacher say, you love your enemy? What else has this teacher said? And he became just, just, uh, 
uh, soaking up every word of the gospel. And in the case of reading the New Testament, that's one of the keys of evangelism. You get a Muslim to read the New Testament. And by the end of reading through the scriptures, Mossab Hassan Yusuf concluded that Jesus was no mere prophet. He must be more than a prophet. He was the son of God. He was God in the flesh. And he gave his life to be a follower of Esau, a follower of Jesus. He became a Christian. And then he asked himself, secretly, he didn't tell anyone. He says, as a follower of Jesus, I must love my enemy. And he asked, who is my enemy? Israel. Israel. Unbelievably, Mossab Hassan Yusuf became a covert operative, secretly working for Shin Bet, the, the Israeli anti-terrorist organization. Why? Because he's to love his enemy. And so when they would go to the meetings, and you read the book, it's really more about this than the, 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 the conversion part. To be in the meetings and when his father and the others were planning the next terrorist activity, and he would say, I must excuse myself, he would go out to the other room and he would dial his cell phone and call his handlers and warn them, this is about to happen, move quickly, you must save lives. Why? Because I love my enemy. He almost got caught several times. It's a, it's a thriller page turner. By the end of it, he, he almost got caught. The pressure was more than he could take. He decided he must come to America. And once he was in the safety of the U.S., he decided to come clean and tell his story. His own father did not know. Father, I'm, I'm Christian. And I work for the Israeli anti-terrorist organization. Shocked to the Muslim world. Completely disowned. And then you're not going to believe what happened late last year. Mossab Hassan Yusuf's name shows up on the um, Homeland Anti-Terrorist List. And so Homeland Defense decides he needs to be deported back to Israel. Now, fortunately, a California judge stepped in. He's still in the U.S. And we need to pray about that. He needs to stay in the U.S. You, you know what happens if he goes back, don't you? So we need to pray for our brother Mossab Hassan Yusuf. But my point is this. Is it worth it? Should we try to be, see if God will use us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our Muslim friends and neighbors? My friend, not only is God reaching the Muslim people, he's reaching right into the center of the terrorist organization. And he's, he's, he's reaching with his gospel the son of Hamas. Let me encourage you to be that kind of uh, bridge builder to share your faith. What a wonderful opportunity to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's true in America, but especially here in the triangle. The whole world is coming right here. What a mission field. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the the blessed gospel. We lift up our Muslim friends to you right now. Help us to be able to share in a way that their ears can understand what you've done in our lives about the power of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to do that with patience, with respect. Help us to be speaking the truth, but to speak the truth in love, not with an agenda, not with a hatred, to build those relationships over time. And give us the privilege, Lord, we ask you, of seeing some of our Muslim neighbors and friends come to embrace you and embrace your son, Jesus Christ, with the true gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name.